how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at FreelancerClass.com. Director Joe Lynch talks Mayhem, starring Stephen Yen from The Walking Dead and Samara Weaving from Ash vs. Evil Dead. In this interview, Lynch talks about his influences like A Clockwork Orange and The Blob, how he didn't storyboard for the new film, bad advice in the film business, and the evolution of a director, along with his ongoing love for the horror-comedy genre. I wanted to be in film ever since I watched movies when I was like little, like as far back as I remember. It's starting to sound like uh, the opening of Goodfellas. As far back as I remember, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. But it's true. And, you know, fil filmmakers and filmmaking to me, it's, it's such a collaborative effort that I feel like everybody who works on a film set is a filmmaker. It's not just the director or the writer, the you know, producers, the actors. It's everybody. It's the special effects people. It's the grips. It's the catering people. We're all filmmakers. So when I was when I was little, though, I, at first I wanted to be a makeup effects artist. I wanted to be Tom Savini and Rick Baker and, you know, and the K&B guys and everything. And I also wanted to be an actor. So essentially I did want to be Tom Savini. Um, but it wasn't until I saw, and, and I had loved movies forever, and I was reading Fangoria and Cine Fantastique. But it wasn't until I saw Chuck Russell's The Blob that I had that kind of epiphany moment. Because I remember being in the theater specifically, watching the audience going apeshit during this movie. And going, all right, wait a second. So the director guy, he gets to, and I, you know, obviously I already knew who Steven Spielberg and John Landis and even William Friedkin and, and uh, Joe Dante and Brian De Palma. I knew who those guys were, but I didn't really quite know what their jobs were. But then I quickly figured out, like, okay, so the director gets to work with the, the actors and the writer and the special effects guys and the cinematographer and the musicians, like, he's kind of like the alchemist for all of it, but, you know, working within the confines of whatever budget and schedule it is. I, I was just transfixed by that. And it was all, all from this one screening. And ever since I wanted to be a director and, and I haven't looked back since. So is it mainly the audience reaction? Is that what attracted you to like the, the horror genre? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, any, any good movie, any entertaining movie will elicit a response from an audience. But there was something specific about like that particular audience at that 3 p.m. show where I got to watch them both scream, gasp, cry, and laugh. That was a big one because like if you've seen Chuck Russell's The Blob, it's wickedly funny and it's a very entertaining movie. Like I, I've I've noticed now that I'm kind of like looking back at all of my films that the, the kind of 
common denominator with all of them is that I am trying to entertain you. As dark as some of them may get, like Everly is clearly my darkest movie, but there are moments in there that I like, I'm kind of aware of the audience and knowing that even in the darkest moments, it's good to have, you know, a levity laugh or it's good to be able to kind of twist the screws emotionally and, and, and try to affect the audience in a way so that it doesn't just feel like it's just these flat images hitting it, you know, hitting the viewer and they're just going off of that. So horror and comedy have always been like the, I, I, I hasten to say like the easiest, but it is like the ones that are the go-tos when it comes to garnering like more of an immediate response, especially with the collective audience in the theater. Um, but I, I mean, I love all movies, you know, like when, when I was making Long Turn 2, uh, I, I was labeled as a horror director, but I don't necessarily see like Nights of Bad Aston as a horror movie. You know, Everly is more of like a, a dark action movie than it is a horror movie, but there's still kind of like horror moments kind of sprinkled throughout. And then with Mayhem, honestly, I find that movie is a comedy. Maybe that's just my dark, twisted sense of humor. You know, but the fact that people have labeled it more of like a horror comedy, that's fine. Whatever, hey, whatever gets people to watch the movie. And when you have, you know, Stephen from The Walking Dead and Samara from, uh, you know, both The Babysitter and Ash vs. Evil Dead, it's an easy label to use. But I, I, I to, to me personally, I think it's just a wickedly funny, like, comedy that just so happens to have a lot of blood in it. So, you know, it, it's, it's mostly just that I, I tend to find movies, at least in the last couple that I've done, that are, that are trying to elicit an entertained response out of the audience, whether that be laughing, crying, screaming, or what have you. How did you first come across the screenplay for Mayhem? Um, it got sent to me. Uh, Matt Smith over at Circle of Confusion, uh, one of the producers there, was a big fan of Everly and sent me the script. And I was in a corporate job at the time. So when they say, like, oh, you know, the script landed on my desk, it actually did kind of land on my desk. You know, um, you know okay, maybe it was an email. But I was in a cubicle doing a job that I was not happy with. You know, it was just kind of making ends meet and paying the bills. And I, when I, I remember reading it at lunch and immediately responding to it more than I've ever done with a script before because I was Derek. I was that guy who was like, all right, I have responsibilities here I, or I have like an idea of what success is in one form or another and I need to adhere to that. Yet there's this nagging feeling that I'm not doing what I was put on this earth for. And that like my passions and my, my creative juices were not flowing based on this job and, and I yearned to get out. So I, I really responded to the script on a personal level and I look back at it now and, you know, I mean, every director says this at one point or another, whether it's for spin or, or it's sincere, but like this is my most personal movie because I was Derek. And I think there's so many other people who can relate to that. And I wanted to tap into that and kind of use the frustrations that I had and work them out in the most creative way possible. So, you know, that, that's really what made me, that drew me to the script was I had a lot of shit to tell and a lot of frustrations. And it's like, I didn't have to thinly veil it in some kind of other metaphor, like maybe I have in the past or whatever. This was one where it's like, I can put all of my passions and my frustrations right up there on screen, front and center. How did Stephen Yen and, and Samara Weaving originally get drawn to the project? Stephen, um, at, at the time when we kind of got the quote-unquote green light, um, I was, that was a Friday, and then on Sunday, I was watching The Walking Dead like everybody else was. I'm a huge fan of that show. And I had kind of watched Stephen grow up from the pizza boy to being a hero, uh, a conflicted hero nonetheless, but a hero all the same. And when he fell off that dumpster in that, that first kind of fake-out death, 
I remember being so affected by that and so bummed. And I'm like, this is a fucking character on a TV show. And watching like the, the internet melt when that happened too, you know, and then obviously like what they took his name off of it for a couple of weeks and then it ended up being a bit of a fake out. But watching how the audience was so affected by Steven and his performance and how his character was like so loved, there aren't many every men anymore or like, like currently right now in, in, in Hollywood or like in the kind of actors and the talent pool that are out there. And I just always loved Steven. And to me, like he's, he's really just such a wonderful everyman. And, and, but across the board, you know, everybody can relate to him. He just got that kind of it factor and that kind of like what I like to call the Dreyfus, the Dreyfus effect, where it's like when you look at like Richard Dreyfus and Jaws and the goodbye girl and close encounters of the third kind, it's like, they might not be doing the, the most morally, you know, um, right things, or they might not be doing, you know, things that would be considered like hero moments, but you just endear to them so much and you just kind of fall in love with them that whatever they do, you kind of go like, yeah, but it's Steven, you know, it's like, he's just charming. And then Samara, I had been a fan of hers from Ash vs. Evil Dead. And so when her name came up, I was like, I got to meet her, you know, immediately. And unfortunately we were in Serbia already. So I had to do it over Skype, and that's not the most ideal situation that you want to do is talk to who's likely going to carry your movie over a computer. But two minutes into this conversation, and I just knew, like, I was like, all right, we can, we can fucking get along. She's got a sailor's mouth, and, you know, she's got a, a wicked sense of humor, and she just seems so pumped and primed. And her ideas for Melanie were just so spot on to exactly what I wanted that I just knew, put these two together in a room, and just watch the sparks fly. So there was no like hesitation about the actors being, you know, possibly typecast or any, I feel like that's not as, as bad as it used to be with actors or less concern for them. Well, I think that, you know, the way that the marketplace is now and the culture is now, you know, you have actors who would never do TV who are doing TV. Now you have actors who would never do genre movies or doing genre movies. Now I think like the, the days of people being more selective with certain things, are gone based just purely on the business side. But I think people are just taking more chances on, on knowing what, who their audience is. And, you know, both, both Steven and Samara are come, like at the time that we were making this, we're kind of a crossroads, you know, Samara had not had the, like they shot the babysitter the year before. So she had no clue what was going to happen with that. And Steven had not yet obviously left the walking dead. So, you know, but he was, he was ready to leave, you know? So here are two actors who, we're both at a, at a point in their lives where they were, you know, they've done genre stuff and they, you know, were comfortable in that space. So why veer too far away from it and, and, and kind of alienate their audience. So I think both of them were, you know, especially in their reps and everything, were very aware that they have, you know, a fan base, or at least they, they had people who liked seeing them in this, this, these worlds and these spaces. So, that's where I think they were comfortable doing that. And then once we kind of all got together, we went, okay, we all know what we want. Now let's push it further. And having collaborators like that, who are so willing to kind of like go the extra mile, that's, that's a director's dream come true. For this new film, were there any specific um, cinematic influences or homages that made their way into the film? Um, oh my God, like I ask me on any given day and I can probably pull out like whatever references that like I was always kind of attuned to. Um, I, I'm, I come from the world where I speak movies, you know, and 
I'm not saying that I'm like ripping things off, but there are feelings that I remember having when I'm seeing like a particular, like Brian De Palma shot or a particular Scorsese, you know, moment or a John Landis beat or the way that, um, you know, William Friedkin has an actor, you know, describe something and how the editor kind of cuts him off right at the pass. Like I'm just kind of like this, uh, I, I don't want to say encyclopedia because that kind of comes with pomp and ego, but like that's kind of like how my brain works is that my passions and my, my influences come from a very cinematic place. Specifically for this movie, um, this is the first movie that I didn't really set out to have like, this is my love letter to this or that because it was so personal. Because it was like, this, this is my decree on corporate culture. Now, that being said, it's like, how can I not, you know, uh, take a couple tropes from other movies, even just to kind of prove the point in terms of the tone, because it was a very particular tone for the other crew and for the other cast members to know, like, where we were going from or coming from. So the the two movies that always kind of come up in my head um, are uh, Wolf of Wall Street, mainly because I kept referring to that movie from a technical level because I wanted to make sure that, like, for example... You know, there's a lot of scope in that movie. But if you look in the bullpen, all the windows are closed. Now, I don't remember that watching it because, you know, the camera's moving so crazily and, you know, the the energy is so high in that movie that you just don't notice it. So when we were scouting that location in Serbia, I was like, how the fuck are we going to use this building? If you open up the windows, you're looking at goddamn Serbia. Like, how are we going to do this? So that night I went home and I watched the Wolf Wall Street and I go, oh, my God, all the blinds are closed. So the next morning I made the art director very happy and he said, close all the blinds. Don't worry about it. Like, we'll be fine. Uh, and then tonally, the other, the other movie that I just, I never referenced on the set, but I look back at the movie now and go, my God, what the fuck was, like, why, why wasn't I thinking this more was A Clockwork Orange? Um, mainly because of the tone and how, you know, Kubrick take, took things like comedy and, and dread and horror and mashed them into one. And, you know, using things like, you know, classical music and juxtaposing them with, you know, extreme violence and how violence can be seen as a comedy beat in, in a way that it's still judgmental towards the character. It's not just completely nihilistic. It's like the movie still passes judgment on these people, but it's done in a way that's like it's sugar to make the medicine go down, whether it's using pop culture references or, it's, or if it's using you know, music or even just like camera movement or even the actors. There's something about Clockwork Orange that was so satirical and I just, I glommed onto that, but it, it wasn't until I actually came home and watched it randomly one night while I was editing and I went, Jesus Christ, I made a Clockwork Orange and I didn't even realize it. It was just so ingrained into my DNA that I was like, oh my God, like, why didn't I, why didn't I think of that before? But I'm kind of glad I didn't because then I would be like, this is my Clockwork Orange homage. I didn't think about that at all. This movie was made almost like with an id. It was almost like I was infected and the crew and I were infected because we, we, I normally very strictly storyboard and shot list and everything. And then this one, I went like, I kind of want to let the actors and I want to let the moment dictate where I put the camera every morning and where I'm setting things off. Now I, I, you know, I always had a plan but in, in before, in, in previous movies, I would always be like, nope, we got to go down this path because we don't have time and money to kind of compromise and collaborate and, you know, and just kind of let things happen organically. 
when you have actors like Steven and Samara and who are so gung-ho, and then that goes for the rest of the cast and even the crew, where I would be taking great ideas from the catering people in the props department. And like, we just kind of all did it on the fly in a way. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And it was the most gratifying experience I'd ever have. And it was something that I'd never done before. So it was totally out of my comfort level, my comfort zone. And yet I look back at it and I go, I want to do that again. Like I want to not be so strict to, I have to be exactly like this or nothing. No, man, like just kind of go with the flow. And that, that was, that's kind of the message of the movie as well. It sounds like every project may be different, but during your time as a director, have any of your overall beliefs, behaviors, or habits changed over time? Um, yeah, I think every, every filmmaker evolves no matter what. Like when I was making um, Wrong Turn 2, you know, I, I was very strict in, in how like I wanted this to be a love letter to the 80s and a love letter to splatter movies and everything. And I didn't quite go under the surface enough like looking back i feel like there could have been i could have done more like subversively i could have done more character wise and not make it some something that was like more akin to just like uh, a disposable roller coaster that you jump on you have a blast and you jump off um and, and that's not to no detriment to wrong turn two at all I'm, I'm so proud of that movie but each movie that i that i've done has driven me to kind of find deeper meaning and i think every filmmaker needs to go through that like with Everly, at first, I didn't expect it to be a movie about parenthood. And I wrote the thing, but it wasn't like I wrote that movie before I became a father. And then I made the movie as I was a father. And the difference in that, you know, the, the, that span of time, I feel made me kind of reevaluate things along the way and how there can always be a deeper meaning in what you're trying to do, even though on the surface, it's, it, it, it comes across as you know, cinematic or crazy or goofy or funny or, you know, or, or scary or whatever, you can always infuse something more. And I think with every film, I'm always learning. And I think that, you know, with the next film, all the, all the things I learned on Mayhem, especially just kind of going with the flow, is going to affect that, hopefully for the positive. What is the most common bad recommendations or bad advice you hear in your line of work? That's a really good question. Uh, I think part of it is, uh, that anybody can shoot. And, and I've said it a million times too. It's like, Hey man, look, if, if they can make tangerine, if, if Sean Baker can take a, an iPhone and make a movie out of, you know, like using an iPhone and make something like tangerine, like you can do it too. And I, I've, I feel like not everybody kind of takes that the right way where they just think like, Oh, I can, I, you know, I, I have a phone. I can shoot stuff too. It's, it's more than that. And I feel like sometimes if you say that people think like, Oh man, all I got to do is just put something on YouTube and I'm going to be a movie star, you know, or I'm going to be the next big auteur. And it's advice that I would like, I would hope that like someone up, up higher than me, like one of my heroes or whatever would, um, would, would tell me at the time too, because it's like, there's nothing better than having your hero say, don't give up buddy. But then there, there, there's sometimes where you go like, eh, maybe, maybe this isn't for you. Because it does take it. Filmmaking is tough, and I would hate to veer anyone in a way where they would think that like it's it's easy because it is not. And there's nothing worse than kind of telling someone like you can do it too, and then they fail. Um, because I've failed many times too, and I'm just stupid enough to you know to keep going because I'm kind of so far into it, I don't know when to quit. Uh, so sometimes you know it's not always the best advice to just kind of tell someone like you can do it too because 
it, it's it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money, and it's like you have to, especially in this day and age where there are no there are no easy routes to making film anymore. You really got to fucking love what you're doing because you're not going to make money in most cases. This is likely going to put you into debt. Your family's going to hate you. But if, if you truly feel like this is what you're supposed to do, then go for it. But you know, anybody just kind of going like, "Oh, well, let's 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 do this." It's it's not the best advice in the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook. How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block, which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin, William Monahan, and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at BrockSwinson.com. B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com.